is 34. Just when all seems well and great with Jacob's family, we're drawn back down to earth. In the very next chapter tonight, we're forced to remember that this world is cursed and the children of promise have to live in it. Those on whom God has granted his blessing are strangers and aliens. Among earth dwellers, Jacob had given honor to God, built an altar in Shechem, but trouble is lurking there. Trouble is always lurking. It's lurking everywhere in the world, regardless of where we build our altars, so to speak. This is always contested land that we live on. Bethel was only a day's journey away from here. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe Jacob should have returned there. Maybe it would have been safer, but it'll take until the next chapter before he returns to the place of his original vow. For now, there's only trouble. Before Genesis transitions to the next major character, we get a glimpse tonight into the family through whom the covenant promises have been given. And there are some character issues that need to be addressed, but they won't be really until the story of Joseph comes front and center. The world is always going to beckon to the children of God. It's always going to try to pull us away. The Canaanite way of life lured Jacob and Leah's daughter, Dinah, away from the safety of her covenant family tonight in chapter 34. And in the midst of this horrible situation that unfolds tonight, what becomes crystal clear once more is how badly the children of men are in need of a savior, of one who can not only bring about justice and peace, but can actually secure and maintain it for his people. The children of God must rely on his promise and resist the lure of the world until Jesus himself makes everything right. Let me pray for us again. Father, I ask tonight that you would open our hearts to receive your word with brokenness and humility as we read. Father, watch over me as I Preach it, please guide my mind and my mouth for your name's sake, for your people. May we believe what you tell us in your word. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 of 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. At the end of chapter 33, Jacob had made his camp outside of Shechem, probably deliberately, but Dinah is drawn to the city anyway. She leaves the protection of her household and family and goes out, as the text says, to see the women of the land. This is a young woman of marriageable age, leaving a rural encampment and going unprotected into an alien city. So far in Scripture, cities are dangerous. Bad things tend to happen in cities. This is not a wise thing to do. But one way, I guess, to guarantee a child will go somewhere they shouldn't is for you to tell them they shouldn't go there, right? We learned that about kids. I don't know what the conversations were like, but we can probably assume that Jacob had warned her, warned his children about going to the city, but it's in our nature to resist what we hear. There was a lure for Dinah about the Canaanite way of life, to see the women of the land. How did they live? What did they do? And this story reveals that Problems will arise when the covenant family of God intermingles with Canaanites. Pick it up in verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. 
So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Just so we're clear, okay, Dinah was right. This is the language the text heavily implies. Notice how terse it is. Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, obviously an important ruler of the land. It may have been his family that founded the city, given his name of his son or the name of his son. Later on, you'll see... How influential these men are. But the text says, notice the verbs. He saw her, seized her, lay with and humiliated her. But he has feelings for her. Notice how the verbs in verse 3 answer the 3 in verse 2. Now his soul is drawn to Dinah. He loved her and spoke tenderly to her. Either he's genuinely in love with her, or his lust is so overwhelming for her that he just has to have her forever. I'm guessing she didn't feel the same way. I'm guessing she didn't reciprocate, but that's part of the point here about Canaanites, that Israel needed to learn, that we're learning as we read, Shechem doesn't care what Dinah wants. He wants Dinah. He wants to possess what he had wrongfully taken. And so when we read that, what does that remind us of? The Canaanites are not that different from Jacob. Right? The world is cursed And so is everyone in it. Everyone. Despite his feelings for Dinah, there's no sense whatsoever that he feels remorse for doing something horrible to her. There any sense that he's repentant about anything. He just tells his dad, get me this girl for my wife. Shechem is a true Canaanite. He takes what he wants and shows no remorse for how his actions have affected others. So we pick it up in verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. The response of the family to what has happened to Dinah will give us a glimpse into their character, their dynamic Once again, unfortunately, Jacob is extremely passive throughout the whole chapter. He only speaks at the end. He knows what has happened, but he doesn't do anything. And when he finally speaks, it at least seems like he's much more concerned about his reputation in the community than he is about the defiling of his daughter. And notice, that's what the text calls what happened to her repeatedly, three times, defiled. That word is used to describe meaning Dinah has been sinfully violated, She's been contaminated by the Canaanites through no fault of her own, right? They've, they've hurt her. They've marked her, is what the text is saying, against her will. But it seems like Jacob, it seems like he's afraid of doing anything about it. One of the reasons I think that we should read Jacob's actions here negatively is that just after being renamed Israel back in chapter 32, the text here in chapter 34 refers to him by his old name the whole time, Jacob. The name he had before God changed it, implying at least that he's acting a lot more like the old Jacob than he is the new Israel. But against the backdrop of Jacob's passivity is the proactivity of his sons. In verse 7, they are indignant and very angry about what happened to Dinah. They're morally outraged by it, and that's justified. Their outrage is justified. She had been violated. She had been humiliated, defiled. Their desire for justice to be done is appropriate, beloved. 
But the plan they come over to carry it out shows that Jacob's tendency towards deception as a means of getting what you want has been passed on to his children. Look at verse 8. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. You notice how it sounds like the opposite of what God has said to this family. Just, you, you can just, you can hear it. God has said to do precisely the opposite. Hamor is beckoning to Jacob and his family. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised or that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So Hamor and his son, the rapist, let's be clear, Shechem, approach Jacob's family to request that Dinah be given to Shechem as his wife. These are his reasons. First of all, he wants to marry her. All right, that's his first offer. Secondly, there are major benefits to the family of Jacob if this marriage happens. They'll become part of the community by intermarrying with them. They'll increase their holdings. Their opportunities for gaining property will increase since they'll all be at peace and all be family. And then Shechem adds a bride price to the whole deal. He'll pay whatever it would take for Jacob to agree to this. So it's a very nice proposal. It's just missing... One small piece of information that would have been helpful, the slightest bit of recognition or an apology and repentance for raping his daughter. All right, let's not lose sight that that's what's happening here. Look at 16. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. Beloved, that cannot happen. Remember that. They can't be one people. It's not allowed to happen. The Canaanites... And the children of promise cannot, must not become one people. Now, I know that we're all cheering for Dinah's brothers here. We want this to work. We want revenge, just like they do for her sake. But the fact of the matter is they concoct an extremely deceitful plan to carry out revenge for their sister. And what makes it such a big deal is that they use the right of circumcision Granted to them by God as a ploy to carry out this scheme. They cannot give Dinah to Shechem. It would be a disgrace to give her to one who was uncircumcised. So what is what do they say? All the men of Shechem would have to be circumcised for this marriage to be allowed. All of them. If they are all willing to do that, you know, in case there's more marriage to come, Jacob's sons promise to give Dinah to Shechem. If they won't, Jacob and his family will leave the area, area, and Shechem will not be allowed to have Dinah. But of course, in actuality, the sons of Jacob have no intention whatsoever of allowing this marriage. They've deceived Hamor and Shechem to carry out revenge. Again, I think we want sometimes the end to justify the means, but God is holy. He's holy. Look, pick it up in verse 18. 
Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. That does not speak well of Canaanites. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Hamor and Shechem are thrilled with the deal when they originally hear it. They set out to get the whole city of Shechem to go along with it. Circumcision of adult male would be a little painful, but we get a hint in the end of verse 19 that Shechem was highly revered in the city. He has influence. He's able to sweeten the deal with the promise of economic benefits for the people in Shechem, right? We'll acquire livestock and property. So that's the most important thing to the Shechemites, to all earth dwellers, really, right? Increased holdings, more security. So it works. The men of Shechem agree to it. Sounds good to them. Hamor and Shechem appeal to the self-interests of each group, don't they, when they pitch their deals. They tell Jacob's sons that they'll acquire more land and property. They tell the Shechemite men that they will acquire more possessions. So the deed is done. Pick it up in verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives All that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Now, it looks like it's specifically two sons who carry out the plan of revenge, Simeon and Levi. Remember, all these young men are a part of Jacob's family, but Simeon, Levi, and Dinah are all Leah's children. So they're saying that was our sister this happened to, right? Just like Shechem had seized Dinah, they took Dinah out of Shechem's house, which means, by the way, keep this in mind, Shechem had kept Dinah in his house after he raped her. He'd kept her there. So Shechem had the upper hand in all the negotiations, didn't he? Because he has their sister in his home. So the negotiations were never honest by either group. Since the men of the city were still sore from the circumcisions, and every guy that has ever read this text understands this, you know, when when you think, okay, how could two guys, if it was just two, how could two guys kill a whole city of males however big it was, even if it was all 12 of them, how could they do it? Well, because, didn't you read, they had been circumcised as adults, and all the men say, oh, that's how they could get killed. Because, no, you're not, the last thing you're going to want to do is fight, right? You're just, they get slain. They kill the men, they take their sister back, they plunder the flocks, the herds, the wealth of the city, but then they captured all the women and children in the whole city. And again, I know we want them to win. Because of what happened to Dinah. But what of the women and children of Shechem who are now also plundered against their will? 
See, the same thing has happened. Humanity eventually has to copy what was done wrong to someone in order, by their thinking, to make up for it. Right? We, we, we can't escape this. The thinking will eventually become, if you did blank to me, doing blank to you is justified and will make it right. And so in humanity, there's never any peace, no matter how hard you work for justice. Pick it up in verse 30. <clears throat> Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, he finally speaks, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? When Jacob finally confronts them about what they had done, they respond with, what in the text ends up being a rhetorical question. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? That's how this story ends. There's no resolution here. Neither Jacob nor his sons have acted appropriately in this chapter. They've not come out and been separate. Jacob says and does nothing, really. He speaks out of fear rather than out of faith. And it at least, again, seems like he's much more concerned with his standing and reputation or his safety in the community than he does about the life and the honor of his own daughter. But that begs the question, well, well, should they have done nothing? Should they have done nothing about this? Then they would have looked weak or unable to protect their own, which would have brought more harm, more trouble for Jacob's family. So it's just a mess. What can be done? What should have been done Simeon and Levi were absolutely justified in their anger over the violation of their sister, but revenge doesn't justify deception. And deception, again, it runs through the chapter. It has plagued this family for years. We're meant to see it here. It's been part of the theme of Jacob's story. It had been sown into the family by Abraham, unfortunately, back in chapter 12 and chapter 20, and it's become a character trait of Jacob also. Jacob was changing. We know this from the context of chapter 33 and so on, but he's passed this on to his sons nonetheless. Deception is in their DNA also. God intervened, if you remember, in Abraham's deception back in chapter 20 so that he ended up being a source of blessing to Abimelech and his household. Jacob and his sons, say what we want, are, are not a blessing to Shechem in any way, shape, or form. They are plunderers of Shechem. Killers in Shechem. Jacob and his family are neither safer nor more righteous than because they've returned to the land. We find that the promise of God holds, but the heart and the character of the recipients is still a problem as we come into this chapter. And now the homeless one that had finally settled in a home, he's thinking, is like an alien again in the land where he lived. Only this time it's the promised land. He thought this was his home, but it becomes, it becomes apparent to him here that the land will not be conducive to him as it will not be conducive or easy one day to Israel. And so again, the narrative ends with a question in verse 31. That's intentional. The matter in this chapter is unresolved. The sons are blind to the problem they've created by using their religion as a ploy to exact revenge. 
as Israel prepared to enter the promised land, remember that's who first received Genesis, they needed to know the danger of associating with the Canaanites. But they also needed to know how much they were still in need of a true Savior who could bring about justice, who could maintain it, and who had no flaws that would make things more difficult. The world that rejects Jesus Christ will always have a different idea than the church does about who is entitled to blessing and to land. So how do we live amongst our God's enemies? How do we act among them? We could fight dirty like they do, like Jacob's sons did. But notice that God's blessing is not obtained by grasping at it, by winning a fight. Right when verse 22, only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, says who? God has given no provision here. There's been no condition when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. But the blessing cannot be backed into, can it? There are no loopholes. There are no ways to buy it. The Canaanites could not become God's people by brokering a deal with Jacob's family. For one thing, Jacob and his family are not the owners of the blessing. It's not theirs to buy or sell at will either. It is all by God's promise and belongs only to those to whom God shows mercy. It's the only way you come to obtain the promise. For the citizens of Shechem, you can see adapting a piece of Jacob's family's religion for economic gain was not a problem at all. It's expedient. They had no issue with that whatsoever. Whatever it meant. Oh, you have to be circumcised for this to route. Okay, we can do that. Whatever works. There isn't even any pushback from the men of the city. For them, it's, it's easy. Whatever means more, let's do it. Very pragmatic. But notice something. Jacob's sons don't have any true regard in the text for circumcision either. They're willing to use it as a means of deception so that they can fulfill their desire for revenge. In order to broker a deal with Canaanites, you have to act like a Canaanite. And we are to be separate. Beloved, this world is cursed. We don't want this world. We don't want to broker a deal. We don't want what we can gain by getting into bed with them. Because here's what we're realizing about the world in which the children of promise live Here, women get raped. You have to deceive to win. You have to use religion here. Families get torn apart in this world. Children suffer and die. Relationships break apart and fail. There's famine, disease, tyrants, murderers, lies, schemes. People die. People get used and abused. Nothing lasts. Everything under the sun crumbles beneath the passage of time. Why would we fight for a stake in this world? Why? There will always be a need for justice. Always. Someone's blood will always be crying out from the ground. Things will always be unfair. Nothing is fully reconciled or completely answered in this world. Nothing. And if we keep thinking... That justice or peace or safety or life or gain or a home 
will come from or can be found in this world, will keep having to adapt to the ways of the world to obtain it, and it will never work because it's cursed. People will continue to suffer and lose and hurt others and be hurt themselves. In other words, our safety and our hope and our security will never come from aligning ourselves with the world and its ways. Not ever. The world that we live in, beloved, has been subjected to futility by the one who made it. That will never stop until Jesus makes everything right. Romans 8, 20. There's no way for those who have placed their hope in Christ to find a home or belong among those who refuse to hope in Christ. Jacob's family and the Shechemites could never dwell together as one happy people. It can't happen. Eventually, we won't be able to maintain coexistence. Not when one has been promised life and the other has chosen death. Those two things will always clash. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of men will always clash. Just like Jacob's sons promised Hamor and Shechem identity with their family and their holdings, and Hamor and Shechem promised Jacob's family an increase in their possessions, beloved, do not trust the world when it promises you security. Don't trust it. Resist. Resist the lure of the world. Resist the idea that we can get complete justice or complete reconciliation or complete security or complete stability here. It will never happen. Resist it. It's not true. No one can grant to us what Jesus can. No one. No one can heal the world. No one can make all things right. No one can eradicate pain or sickness or poverty or hunger. At the end of the day, it's a fool's errand and it employs the flesh to fix things. And in the flesh dwells nothing good, Paul says in Romans 7.18. We tread very closely with political passion to sacrificing our faith on the altar of worldly security just so we can feel safe in this world. The problem is, that's not what we've been given grace for. To use for worldly security. To use to bring about what we want or desire. That's not why you and I have been given grace by God. Not to get what we want in this world. It is right for us to hunger for justice, We should. It's right for us to desire that God's name and his sons be vindicated. It's right for us to long for peace and healing to all the division and discord and hatred in the world. It's right for us to desire all these things and even grieve when we don't see them. And we don't just stop caring or or become glib. That's not what it is. The fact of the matter is, is that the world is ugly. Revenge didn't fix anything here. It made everything exponentially worse. There are too many webs. The the shrewdness of this plan didn't honor God. And look, that doesn't mean we don't care about Dinah. Not at all, or women like her. It means leave Dinah's vengeance to God. Now that doesn't deny or bypass the place of governmental authority and punishment when abuse happens. Absolutely not. 
Authorities have been given and ought to use the sword to punish evildoers. No question we should pray for this, desire it, but beloved, remember this. Always remember this. Even that isn't true justice. Think about this for a minute. Let's say these men were, or or that Shechem was properly, orderly, caught, indicted, punished for his crime. Glory to God for that. What about Dinah? Think she's okay? Think she just, oh, good, he got caught. I'm good. Problem solved. I'm all better. No. Now she'll suffer for that the rest of her life. She was violated. I don't think that just goes away because somebody gets caught. Again, it doesn't mean we don't want them to get caught. It doesn't mean we don't want them to get punished. I'm saying that's not ultimate justice. It's worldly justice. It's good. It's right. But it doesn't fix Dinah. Of course, it helps. be one thing if he was just left to do whatever he wanted to do. That would be a whole different kind of hurt for her. But justice doesn't put a violated woman back together. Not in the world. Neither would revenge. I mean, revenge is really about how mad I am about what happened here. Nobody asked Dinah here what she wanted. Nobody. It doesn't heal. The worldly justice, although given by God, doesn't heal. It doesn't make the abuse disappear. It still happened to her. There are still scars. There are still victims, no matter how well law and order might work. That's not... In other words, thinking this through, I, I believe that the death penalty given in Genesis still stands as punishment for murder. I don't see where it was ever rescinded. But the execution of the perpetrator doesn't bring the victim back. That's not why there's a death penalty. Right? And so, so in other words, you can't argue, well, it doesn't bring the person back, so we shouldn't do it. That's not the point. That was never the point. The death penalty doesn't heal. It simply addresses the fact that something awful has taken place. You take a life, yours should be taken. If, it, if it's murder, right? That's a reminder. The death penalty is a reminder of who owns the world and whose law we're actually breaking. But beloved, God did not set up the world so that the key to healing it was found somewhere inside of it. And if we try really hard... We can find it. That's not why earthly justice exists, to fix everything and make everything right. Again, if somebody takes a member of my family away, Christian or not, I will want them to lose their life, right? I mean, if if, if I'm being honest. But if they get caught and executed, which they should be, I'm not disputing that. What I'm saying is it won't bring my loved one back. So, so the justice God has woven into the world to keep the world under some semblance of law and order is not meant to heal it. It's meant to keep reminding us that this world is ugly. And so when we try to jump over God's design here and use these good tools as a means to fix everything and try to make the world perfect, we're kidding ourselves. Eventually, we'll have to do what the Canaanites do. And we can't do what the Canaanites do. The world in its present form, even with the things God has placed in it 
to mitigate and address these issues is passing away. Right? It's, it's not ideal. It's not whole. Sometimes to bring peace here in this world, you have to kill people. I mean, sometimes for there to be peace, other people have to suffer. Right? That's not ideal, beloved. It may be the design. I understand that. That's not healing anything. It's keeping things from overwhelming people. It's keeping us from being overrun by chaos. It's not the way that the world will be saved. If, if justice is how the world will be saved, none of us are getting eternal life. The world will never be perfect. That little line that Jesus said to Judas Iscariot is so important in our world right now. Uh, you know, couldn't we have used this money to give to the poor? Remember what Jesus said to Judas? Judas, you will always have the poor with you. There, it's, it's not going away. Poverty is not going away. And if you listen to the people that reject Jesus and want to save the world, what are they trying to do? Make all the bad stuff and all the bad people go away. Do you know how you do that? You execute them. You silence them. You murder them. You take away their rights. You take away their voice. The world is broken. The harder we try to make this world perfect, the more damage we do. What has always been the biggest threat to humanity, really? What, what ideologies bring about the most suffering? The ones that say, we can cleanse the world of what's wrong with it if you let us. And if you don't let us, we'll kill you. Because you're the problem. You ever notice that this is the complete opposite every time of what Jesus said? I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. How? Well, by dying for it. By dying for it. By letting Jacob and his brothers kill me instead of Shechem. To live by faith in this world, beloved, in this world, is learning to navigate the tension that exists because the kingdom of the world is clashing with the kingdom of God in this age, where the age to come, yes, has been inaugurated with the ascension, with the resurrection, but has not yet been consummated by the return of our Lord. Think about the tone of the New Testament. Think about its tone. If you had to try to sum it up, right? Getting out of Acts into the epistles and the Christian life and the church. What's the tone? What do you keep hearing? The world is cursed. It's fallen. This present age is evil. Look to Christ. Preach the gospel. Watch and pray. Everything that can be seen is temporary. Look to the promise. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Be wise as serpents. Innocent as doves. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We don't fight for a kingdom here, beloved. And yeah, I, I want to sometimes. I wish sometimes it was a different way. And the idea of, I'll be honest with you, the idea of America crumbling, I think is terrifying for the whole world. I think if we become unstable... It will have an exponential effect of suffering all over the world. You know how I feel about things. I I talk about it a lot. But I mean, at the end of the day, this is a beacon of light for all its evils.
to some degree in our world. If this crumbles, I don't know what the exponential effect will be. And it's not that I, I hope I'm not being arrogant in the way I just, I think America is the best idea man has ever had as far as when he tries to make up a country. I think the idea was wonderful. I think, but I mean, then I, then I'm, I'm met with scripture. It's, it's not like I just want to be a rogue in my thinking. I'm met with scripture that keeps saying to us, teaching us, you have to let the world go. You have to let it go. You can't be fooled into thinking that this will save. Not you, not anybody else. You can't be fooled into thinking that. And so, in one sense, we, we try to maneuver in the world so that we can survive, but that's so we can proclaim the gospel. In another sense, we reject it altogether. But we, we, we have to resist the lure of the world that tells us, listen, wholeness, salvation, peace, satisfaction, healing, all that can be gained through power and wealth and passion for it. You know what happens when we try to compete with the world for a kingdom? We end up inviting retribution for all the wrong reasons. Again, if we're going to get thrown in prison and silenced and killed, let it be for the name of Christ. Let it not be for American ideals. Please hear me. Don't, please don't be angry with me. All right. And I don't know if you are or not. I have no inkling that anybody is. I'm just a self-conscious little guy. Okay. I love America. That's not my point though. That's not why I'm here. I'm not a preacher for that. That's not my task. It's passing away. It's passing away. And maybe it crumbles in our lifetime. I, I don't know. But we, we have to resist this idea that, 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 that we can win. We're not going to win. Jesus is going to win. We don't want to set ourselves up as just another group that's making a power play when in fact, Paul says, we're the scum and refuse of the world by identifying with Christ. It, beloved, there's, there's not a way around that. There's not a way around it. We're fools for Christ's sake, he says. We're not citizens. We're, we're not trying to gain a country. Therefore, we don't fight the same way. Look at Jacob at the end of this text. It's such a tragic thing. He, he doesn't even appeal to any promises. It's like he forgets that God has said, I'm going to take care of you. It's like he, he just completely forgets it. His eyes are fixed on the world and here at the expense of his own daughter. Look, do I believe that deception and revenge were the right way? No, but I mean, dad, do something. Do something, father of Dinah. Right? Do something. Seek God's face. Do something. I mean, Lord, what do I do here? The children of God must rely on His promise and resist the lure of the world until Jesus Himself makes everything right. And He will. Beloved, He will. He is going to keep His word. My exhortation to you, my exhortation when I look in the mirror, have faith. Have faith, beloved. What else is there? We, we don't battle against flesh and blood. Why not? Isn't flesh and blood the problem? 
Well, because we aren't trying to gain any territory. We aren't trying to gain any holdings. We don't have to fight for citizenship. We have it. And the world can't take it from us. It's in heaven. It's with our Savior. We're trying to leave this world. We want it to end. We don't want people to die, but we want the world to end. We want this to stop. Our battle is with the principalities and powers of this present darkness that are blinding people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our fight is with them. Our battlefield is the souls of people. And if if we blur that with another fight, we're going against our purpose. Our battle is spiritual. Not even the promised land in the world was conducive to the children of promise because it was inhabited by God's enemies. Well, beloved, you and I, we will inherit the earth. And the earth is covered right now with God's enemies. Have you and I been given the same commission as Israel when they entered Canaan? No. We don't kill Canaanites. We make disciples of them. So we don't need an army, do we? We don't need money, per se. We don't, at least not... To be wealthy, we, we, we don't need vengeance. It's not necessary. I mean, our, our, all our chips are on the resurrection, beloved. Just like Jacob and his vengeful sons, and again, we can understand. But that's the whole point. Just like them, we need a savior. We need a savior who can bring about true justice, True salvation, true healing, eternal life. These are the things that actually undo the curse and don't just keep it at bay. Beloved, we have that Savior. The the deepest cries and hurts of our souls have been answered and God will keep his word. We groan. Yes, creation groans every day. But the resurrection means God has not only heard the groaning, but will send the risen son back to address the groaning one day for the last time. At the end of the day, most of us are worried, just like Jacob. I know I am. When I look out on the landscape of what may come about, should things go a certain way, I don't know what I will do. If churches get shut down, degrees in Bible don't really impress the secular world. So what am I going to do to provide for my family? It's terrifying. It's scary. And so at the end of the day, most of us are, are very worried about our health. I understand that. I'm, I, I, I do also. About wealth, I am too. About our reputations, I understand. We, and, and look, we might mean well. We might even be decent people. But we're all like the rest of the world hedging our bets, Right? Jesus, on the other hand, so in other words, even if we have the best of intentions, we have to hedge our own bets, right? Jesus, on the other hand, gave his whole life away freely with no thought for himself, none. He's the only one that can do that. He's the only one whose desires for us aren't tainted by having to protect ourselves. That's the power of the resurrection. 
He gave his whole life away freely to save us, to heal our world, to break the curse, to undo it finally and all of its effects. He's the only answer. He's the only one that can do this. Jesus is all there is for humankind, beloved. He's all there is. And at some point we have to trust him. It's been a long time since the resurrection. It's been a long time. And sometimes in the dark, you'll be tempted. We'll be tempted. Are you really there? Are you really coming? Yes. What if it's in our lifetime? What if we get to see the sky crack open? What if you and I get to behold that in our lifetimes, beloved? He's the only answer. He he really is the only answer. The Christian faith is not a tool then to get by in this world. That's not what it's for. It's so much better than that for you and I and for our souls. It's not a means of securing an earthly kingdom. The mark of his blood on my soul is not a trinket to be used for gain. I bear it as an ambassador and a citizen of another world that one day will break upon and finally heal this one. And so we won't gain justice or peace or salvation or healing by grasping or fighting or scheming. We gain it by faith in God's Son. Faith alone can save us because the Savior is the answer to the brokenness of our world. Brokenness like this, brokenness like the worst kinds. Look to Christ. Beloved, God has also made promises to you. Don't forget them when the world violates you. Don't forget them when the world violates the ones you love. There will be justice one way or the other. Because God has made promises. The more you listen to Jesus, the more insane what he says sounds. But he's the truth. He's the truth. We gain life by faith in God's Son. God will not break his promises. He will not go back on his word. That's precisely what scripture is showing us in every single one of these stories. Look to him tonight. Pray for the discernment, the wisdom, the maturity as child, as, as, as children of God to leave the question of what will fix the world in the hands of God. The direction of our country, all these things. Leave that in the hands of God and trust Him. Look to Him. You and I will be safe there. Safe. Be encouraged. Beloved, we're another generation of the church in a world that hates us. Peter tried to tell us, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You and I have Christ. The land has been won. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. Look to Christ. It's all secured for you and I. Have faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as your people for your grace and for your mercy. Look on us tonight, Father. We need you. We need the truth of your word to 
be more true for us in our own soul's comprehension of it than it ever has been. And so, Father, would you watch over us, take care of everyone here, take care of every family, watch over the people in our church that couldn't be here tonight. Lord, take care of them and their families also. Keep us one. Keep us together. Watch over us. May we have faith in you that all will be made right. May that give us comfort when we realize that there is a time for everything under the sun. But this too shall be made right. And so we look to you. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.